microphone button on. Okay, welcome to the Sirius Computer Security Seminar from Purdue University. Our speaker today is Howard Schmidt. Uh, Howard has had a long and distinguished career. Uh, he has been the Chief Security Officer for Microsoft and eBay. In between those assignments was the uh, uh, Cybersecurity Advisor for the White House. Uh, he holds positions as a Professor of Research at Idaho State. Uh, professor of Practice at Georgia Tech, and uh, still as a uh, um, special agent in the Criminal Investigation Division for the uh, U.S. Army Reserve. So uh, we're glad to have him here with us, and uh, his uh, schedule is such that I almost feel like I need to remind him that he's here today in Indiana. Right. <laughs> Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thanks, everybody, for, for coming in this morning, and, and I have apologize for the constantly shifting schedule here, but between air flights and, and I'm leaving uh, for an identity management conference in Australia Friday morning, so I have to bug out this afternoon and get back to the West Coast. Uh, I'd like to sort of conduct this uh, as interactive as possible. Obviously, I think we all can use a nap when we have a talking head up there at the podium, but today I'd like to have it as interactive as possible. So feel free to interrupt, ask questions, challenge some of the things I say, uh, ask me to amplify, or, or maybe you know, move on to some other areas. Please feel free to, to take the liberty to do that. Sort of the broad topic, and it's really interesting when we talk about the whole information security, is the changes I think that, that we've seen over the past 20 years uh, when it comes to how do we define information security and what it means in our day-to-day -day life. I think one of the first things that I want to start out by citing is back in 1996, uh, President Clinton was in office at the time, and there was some discussion at the White House at the time I was over at uh, Air Force Office Special Investigations as the Director of Computer Crime and Information Warfare. Uh, and we had seen as the military, U.S. military, had shifted from the milnet and a closed network environment to the internet for very good valid reasons. One, first and foremost, a lot better technology in the public sector, excuse me, private sector than we had in the public sector. Secondly, the cost was absolutely phenomenal as far as the savings we got in the military, and that could be debated later on through the years as we move to commercial off-the-shelf software. But the biggest thing was just the ability to communicate uh, through the, what is then with the early days of the Internet by many, many stretches of the imagination. Uh, it was just a, a more efficient mechanism to communicate. But with that came the baggage of the people who had been playing in the, in the early days of the Internet since the uh, uh, mid-80s, mid uh, early 90s, had migrated with it, and those who were doing bad stuff just sort of followed along. And what better target was than to find out where the UFOs are really, really hidden at. Uh, where Area 51, where the alien was, what the alien really looked like, and where the photographs were hidden. And seriously, that was some of the things that people started to look for. They try to hack in, in many cases successfully, into military systems looking for that sort of information. So as a consequence, as this information started to sift through the U.S. government, uh, it hit the White House. And of course, the White House said, well, wait a minute now. 
why is the military doing this and why are we going to these commercial systems instead of having literally thousands and thousands and thousands of government programmers warehoused in, in really ugly buildings with no pinball machines or anything else like we, we see in development communities today. Why are they doing that? And what are the real risks to this? And if the military is doing it, what about private sector? The perception was, which was accurate, is the private sector is doing more with information technology than the government was. So consequently, if everybody's doing all this, who's, who's watching it? Who's in charge of security of it? Who's the one that's protecting is what has been redefined now as critical infrastructure? And the answer was nobody really knew. We knew what we saw going on in the defense side of the house. We knew some of the great technology being rolled out from the open source community uh, to a limited uh, extent in, in those days, the, the Apple slash Macintosh community. Uh, and of course, the, the 800 pound gorilla in the room was the Microsoft environment. We saw that uh, pumping out there, but really didn't understand how it was more than just a desktop server issue in some businesses and how it was sort of uh, penetrating every, every facet of our society. So in 1996, President Clinton then put together a commission uh, called the President's Commission for Critical Infrastructure Protection with the basically you know, asking a few things. One, first and foremost, what is this? What does information technology have to do with our day-to-day -day society life? Secondly, who's in charge of security? Third, what happens if something goes wrong? You know, where do we wind up having a catastrophic failure if indeed something goes wrong? And who's in charge of fixing it? And so that commission lasted for about a year. The interesting piece about this commission, which was not dissimilar to other presidential commissions in the past, but this particular one was really interesting because they had like people from the Department of Defense, which was you know, clearly an issue. They had people from the FBI and the Secret Service and other government bureaucracies. But they brought in people from PG&E from California. They brought people from water treatment uh, facilities. They brought a lot of people into that environment that you normally wouldn't expect to see in this sort of a presidential commission. And although it was somewhat challenged at the time it was put out, it was probably the smartest thing they could have done. Because after a year, what happened, they had a really good perspective now on what this all means, what the interdependencies are, and who really owns it. So it was interesting, after the, after the first year, the report came out, which is still out there publicly available. It said a few things. One, first and foremost, that what we defined at the time as critical infrastructure, which was transportation systems, gas and oil, telecommunications and internet service providers, um, healthcare services, uh, energy, you know, gas, oil, those sort of things, all these sort of things which we depend on for the basics day-to-day -day necessities of life, were primarily owned by the private sector. It was determined as a result of that study that about 85% of what we know as CIP at that time, or we knew as CIP at that time, was owned and operated by the private industry. Less than 15% of it was government owned, which was really interesting. The second piece of it, that there was really no cohesiveness. We didn't know what happened if you had a failure in one spot, what the, long, what the effect would be in other areas. Class's example, which we learned years later. How many here remember the, uh, the power blackout in the, in the Northeast here a few years ago? Remember that one? The after-fact the after analysis was that a power-generating station, I think it was in Ohio somewhere, was overloaded, which called this cascading effect, which called the power to go out. Okay, that we knew about. Those sort of things we, we've known for years were possible to happen. We saw years ago where a tree fell in a windstorm in the Pacific Northwest and the lights went out in Arizona, 1,500 miles away. 
It's because of the, the way the power grid works and the distribution uh, mechanisms work that we basically sell excess power to different places when it's not needed uh, in one place, and we just sort of move that stuff around. Well, people didn't think about the long-term effect of that. So you can imagine when that power went out in the, north, in the Northeast, then you start to have uh, issues where police agencies and fire agencies that were dependent on backup generators after 24 hours couldn't get their systems up and running. They, in turn, couldn't get fuel because the fuel depots were run by computer systems, so they weren't able to uh, refill the fuel trucks. So the cascading effects, the interdependencies, became very, very, very clear then. That was one of the things we identified with the initial commission report, that we have tremendous interdependencies that nobody really has modeled much to understand what are the interdependencies and who needs to fix what to get these things back up and running. Individual verticals, individual uh, stovepipes, we had a pretty good idea. Power goes out, here's what the cascading effects are, but not the interdependencies. So that was the second thing of the report. The, the, the third thing of the report, there was no government agency sort of in charge of all this. Uh, and notwithstanding any of our personal feelings about whether the government's efficient, effective, or even smart in some cases, the bottom line is government does have a role, particularly when it comes to national security and public safety. As a, so as a consequence, we wound up in a situation where saying, okay, well, if something bad happens, is the Department of Defense step in? Well, generally from a legal perspective, the answer to that is no. Uh, there's a law called posse comitatus, which basically prohibits, specifically prohibits the military from taking actions, civilian actions, because of you know, what's happened back in Revolutionary War days. Uh, so do, do we depend on the, the telecommunication companies? Well, there was an issue that was brought up. Well, they're very competitive. So why would one telecommunication co company want to help another one who's their competitor? They want to take advantage of the, the, the tragedy or the disruption and say, use our service now, because that doesn't happen to us. Well, clearly that wasn't the answer. So what had happened is the report cited that the government should look at creating offices within the various departments within the U.S. government to work with their counterparts. For example, the Department of Treasury was assigned the task of working with the financial service industry, the insurance companies, the banks, the credit unions, the financial services, to be your liaison to make sure that you indeed are doing what needs to be done to protect the financial structure of the economy. And one of the first questions came up and said, well, what's the government got to do with it? That's private, privately owned. It's market forces drive interest rates in banks. But when you think about what happened, particularly in the aftermath of September 11th, when the financial systems went down just in New York, and what happened to the economy for months and months and months after that. So clearly there was, and with the dependency that we have on the financial services on IT systems, it became very, very noticeable that, yeah, we have to do something, and we have to do something now. So the Treasury said, that's your job. Work with them and make sure that they're doing IT security or information security in the proper way. And you go across the other government agencies and the same, same answers to those questions were, were, were uh, given. Now, that resulted subsequently in uh, May of 1998 during a commencement speech at uh, the Annapolis Naval Academy in Annapolis. President Clinton released PDD 63, Presidential Decision Directive number 63, which effectively asked it, private industry to reorganize itself by sectors to work with each other, even they were competitives, loosen some of the issues around antitrust, because that was one of the big issues, and I'll explain a little bit more here in a moment on that, but that was a policy issue. 
also assign various government agencies that responsibility, like I mentioned, Treasury with the financial sector, energy with gas, oil, uh, transportation with trucking and railways and air airlines, to work with them to deal with some of these issues. The other aspect of it was uh, the president suggested that private sector, through their organization, create what's known today, it was, was the term was used at the time, ISACs, Information Sharing Analysis Centers, where you get those competitors that I mentioned a few moments ago, you get them in the same room, and you say, listen, yeah, we're competitors in the marketplace, but when it comes to protection of critical infrastructure, we all have to play nice together. And that was the fundamental concept. We're all going to get together and form these things. Uh, the financial services, ironically, and I think appropriately so, was the first one to sort of organize itself. All the big banks, all the big financial, all the loan companies sort of got together and said, okay, we're going to create a mechanism by which we can actively, on a real-time basis, share information on threats, vulnerabilities, and best practices. And it was really interesting because uh, I don't know how many of you remember, since you're all security experts here, when we had uh, one of the first attacks that was widespread on a Unix system, where it basically uh, uh, was hitting some of the mail systems. The Financial Services ISAC, Information Sharing Analysis Center, knew that was coming. There was a researcher who said, listen, we're seeing people probing this one particular port uh, on a regular basis. We think that's a, a prelude to a hack. And by the way, the interesting piece of this, it was a known vulnerability. It was on a Microsoft product that had been out there for about six months. It was also a vulnerability that existed in Unix systems as well that had been known about for six or seven months. And a patch was out there for both operating systems, but nobody really did anything about it. So they sent this alert amongst themselves, but didn't tell anybody else. But they were prepared. So they were doing all they can to protect their systems. In the meantime, everything else was falling like dominoes. So consequently, as the other ISACs, which the second one was the IT, the Information Technology ISAC, I had the, uh, uh, the, the I don't know, it was luck of the draw or the, the misfortune of being the first president of it, was bringing Microsoft and Oracle and Sun and AT&T and IBM and everybody together as the, as the uh, IT sector ISAC was an interesting thing. It was really cool from one perspective. The security professionals, all of us, we all got along anyway. Because we'd sit there and every time something bad would happen, the marketing people would say, hey, we got to go on television and say, it was them, not us. And we're going, no, no, we don't want to say that. It could be us next time and it probably will be. So we recognized that we had a common enemy in whoever was attacking our systems, whether it was deliberately for financial gain as it is for today, or in those days it was more or less just for uh, disruptive purposes. So as a consequence, as these ITEX, I, ISACs got set up, we found a tremendous boon in sharing information amongst ourselves, but by example, the financial services was we couldn't keep that a closed community. So we had to share information across the ISACs as well. The threat picture was really difficult. I mean, it's easy for us to go, and I can imagine I can ask any of you in the room right now, where do you see the next threat coming from? And you could say hackers, you could say virus, you could say worms, you could say attacks on mobile systems, you could say data theft and uh, uh, identity theft and these sort of things. We all know sort of where it is. But can you really identify who it is? It's not as if you've got a nation state that's out there you can point the finger to and say they are anti-democratic or they are anti-religion or they're anti-this or anti-that. We know they're going to be out there. So identifying the threats was very, very difficult. The easy thing, though, for the ISACs in particular, identifying the vulnerabilities. As with the, the, the first citation that I gave, 
that was basically a known vulnerability that had existed for a long period of time, but nobody fixed it. So that sort of opened the door a little bit to what used to be security by obscur obscurity. Is everybody familiar with that term, by the way? Yeah, most of us in this business are. But it was security by obscurity. If we don't tell people about the vulnerability, nobody will know about it. Well, that's not true. Somebody's going to know about it. They may not say it publicly, but they're sure going to exploit it. So that sort of opened the door for the ability for companies that were developing software to say, yes, we've had a report of a vulnerability, and here's the patch. It was still a little bit slower than we liked, but clearly it was an issue where we now talked about the vulnerabilities we have. So the ISACs then, irrespective of which ISAC the information came into, were able to share that information with others. So let me zoom ahead to uh, uh, right in the aftermath, actually just before September 11th of 2001. There was a recognition that we didn't want, and we meaning the security community, didn't want particularly the U.S. government telling us how to do security. They didn't want us to say, you know, you have to use Symantec, you have to use McAfee, you have to use Trend, or you can't use this firewall because the, the principles are from another country and we don't trust them and all this stuff. We didn't want the government doing that to us. We didn't really feel the government had the technical ability particularly in the security space, to even try to delineate what are some of the best practices. So we decided what we want to do is we want to you know, continue to drive this from a market forces perspective and keep the government out of our business. The government on the other side felt, wait a minute, in 1998 we released this PD-63. Here it is in year 2001. We're having now the upswing of viruses, worms, and trojans which quite honestly, percentage-wise, was not much greater than it was in the previous years. The difference was, you look at the spike that we had from 1994, uh, and I think last year we what, Chris, uh, crossed the, the threshold of a billion users online. You know, a billion users. So as this usage is going up, the number of viruses and trojans and stuff are percentage-wise going up as well. But what happened now, the impact is greater because you have more users out there that are impacted by it. And so what happened, the government felt, wait a minute, there's not enough progress being made. So the intent was, uh, in April of 2001, now uh, President Bush is in office, to create a President's, com uh, President's uh, uh, Committee on Critical Infrastructure, or the President's Critical Infrastructure Protection Board, I should know that. Uh, That's one I was appointed to. And basically do 10 committees. One of them would look at the education piece of it and what we're doing, which is why we have the Centers of Academic Excellence, of course, which one uh, Purdue is and has been for ever since the very beginning. We look at issues around international issues. This is not, you know, these issues don't stop at the borders of U.S. or even North America. This is an international issue. Look at issues of national security systems in the government, you know, a big issue we have. Look at education and awareness for, for end users and consumers. I mean, I hear day and day, and I see it in my own, my own life, where the, one of the biggest weak links that we have is not the technology, it's the end user. And real life example, I walked in when I was at the White House, walked into a major, major security company, waiting to meet with the CEO, who was running a little bit behind, which happens to all of us, sitting there just chatting with, with uh, uh, his admin, and I happened to look down in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, had this little balloon pop, popped up that says, Security updates waiting to be installed. I asked out of curiosity, I said, by the way, I noticed you got that installed. That pops up all the time. That is so annoying. I, don't, I just wish people would stop doing that. And she clicked it off. And I said, do you understand what that's for? She goes, yeah, it's got to do some update, but I don't have time to do that right now. 
and the machine, of course, is connected to the internet and all the vulnerabilities and exploits and scannings going on. I'm sitting there thinking, that's really unbelievable. This is a major security company. Here's somebody that works there that was not a security specialist that basically said, I don't understand what this means, and it annoys me, so kept shutting it off. Those are the sort of awareness and training things that we need to deal with. And we've seen it even greater with the uh, uh, expansion of broadband. I mean, my dad, who recently passed away, I mean, up until the time he died last year, had broadband. He's had broadband for four years. He was always on. He, you know, uh, you probably heard the stories about whether it's a smart thing from a power usage way, way to turn off your computer and turn it back on or leave it on all the time. Well, he was on the leave it on all the time type basis. And he'd send me about three or four viruses a week and go, is this a virus? Yes, it is. Don't send these to me. I'll, when I come back down to visit, I'll look for it myself. And then I go back and clean six, 700 viruses off of his machine. But here was an individual who was using it on a daily basis, just didn't grasp the concept of some of the threats that were out there. So there was these 10 committees, and, and there were a lot of government things, a lot of bureaucracy involved, but the concept was very, very good. And it sort of you know, went through the, the government uh, you know, discussions about should we do this, how should we staff it, and everything. It came to fruition of October of 2001. Uh, and our main job at that point was to create a national strategy. And I'm not going to bore you with the details, but if you have an opportunity, it's freely available on the, on the White House website. It's whitehouse.gov slash PCIPB, or you can just do a, use your favorite search engine for national strategy to secure cyberspace. So that strategy is out there, and that, of course, led to the creation of uh, the National Cybersecurity Division with Homeland Security, which had the responsibility not to fix these things, because the government can't do it, you can't do it, I can't do it. We all have to do our part to secure cyberspace, but clearly it's an area where there has to be somebody within the government that sort of looks after this stuff, keeps you know, using the cattle prods to move not only government, but also industry to move forward. So I've, I've sort of laid a lot of that out as sort of a background. I want to get into some sort of the, the, the meat of uh, uh, the discussion uh, now and talk about some of the new technologies and the new threats and some of the things we sort of see on the horizon. This is the part I'd really like to get some perspective from you on if you agree or disagree with some of the things that we're seeing out there. One, I think, first and foremost, is this whole issue of application security. What we've seen the, in the early days was people doing attacks on networks. You know, network attacks was the big thing and, and exploiting uh, network technologies to, to uh, accelerate privilege or to get uh, greater privilege in an environment, move up the roots, uh, root uh, authority or, or uh, admin authority or domain authority in a Windows environment. We've gotten good about that. The idea, uh, and I don't, did anybody here attend RSA here a few weeks ago in San Francisco? One of you were there? RSA, uh, and I've been going for years and years and years, I had a couple reporters come up to me and say, you know, listen, they walked the floor of RSA Am I seeing the same thing they're seeing? And I quizzically said, well, I don't understand. What are you asking me? I said, yeah, there's booths there every year. They're giving out free T-shirts. They have like a seven-foot model at one place. And, and they have you know, people walking around with yak coats on, calling Hackettstan and, and all that other stuff. So it's a lot of the, the drama there, but it looks pretty normal. And the, one, one reporter from uh, uh, USA Today said specifically, well, I'm not seeing anything really new. And I got to thinking about it, and there wasn't. You, gone are the days of, gee, here's the new technology we've got to solve something. Look, a firewall, intrusion detection, intrusion prevention. We've been doing that for years now. We know how to do it. Whether or not we do it is a different story, but the technology's out there. 
you're going out and you're, you're talking about two-factor authentication. I bet you say two-thirds, or no, excuse me, one-third of the floor was technologies about two-factor authentication, strong authentication, identity theft, this sort of thing, which I'm going to speak a little bit more to in a few moments. But there really wasn't anything new. And it's not saying that all the technology that can be developed to improve information security has already been, been built. But we're in sort of that stage now where we're saying, listen, you know, the, the technology is maturing. It's the processes that are in many cases broken because we're not doing it. It's the people that's broken because they're not getting trained as they should. But clearly, the landscape is changing. There were a couple things, though, that I think were trying to bring the, the, uh, the, the battlefield more toward the forefront. And that goes back to the issue, coming back to the main topic, about application security relative to network security. Network security did a pretty good job. But the issue is network security, uh, network exploits are successful in many cases today is because the applications that are now uh, network enabled or internet enabled are being exploited. Look at the applications, whether it's a shopping cart on an online website, a word processing program, uh, a iPod, uh, iTunes program. Uh, you look at the applications, and we are constantly seeing patches being put out because people are exploiting the applications themselves. Interestingly enough, which is really, really scary, we've even seen vulnerabilities in security applications, such as personal firewalls and antivirus software, that with a buffer overrun or some sort of a coding error that gives them the ability to shut down that application and then surreptitiously come in and do bad stuff on the computer system. So one of the key things that we're seeing going forward is the application security. And it's interesting because when you look at this, that's sort of the cornerstone of what we're doing. Many of the, the successful exploits that we've seen would not have been possible had we had no vulnerabilities in the software. Now, I'm not crazy enough to think we will ever, ever have software with no vulnerabilities. You know, as long as we have people writing code and we have the potential for vulnerabilities, they're going to be there. They're going to slip through some way or another. But I think we can do significant, uh, significantly better. One of the pieces that I think we sort of confuse, particularly in we're doing education uh, and training and development, is confusing quality with security. Quality you generally will hear about. If you're an end user of a particular application and something doesn't work as advertised, you're going to be on the online support desk. You're going to be making a phone call. You're going to be doing a live chat session. You're going to be sending an email that says, this breaks when I try to do this. But security is not that obvious. In many cases, you don't know about it until something bad happens or somebody reports it. The bad guys generally go out there and say, hey, I just got into your computer system. They're sitting in the background, but something is going on. And so what happens is when you go back to the sort of beginning of this, something bad happens, and somebody needs to figure out why, so they try to replicate it, and they can't replicate it. It turns out it's a hack or an exploit due to a vulnerability, and you start going through that fire drill on a company, and let's say a, a medium-sized company that's building applications, not a, a big software house, and you go out there and you look at some of the issues that it takes. Well, now we have to try to replicate it. And you have to sort of quality assurance it and do all this stuff. And just sort of the fire drill trying to determine what went, went wrong is about 100, $100 plus thousand dollars on an application. That's a relatively small application. We're not talking of operating system or a uh, server or something like that. We're talking about just an application. Then you have to go through trying to fix it. 
all the dev time, consulting time, the, uh, uh, the testing time, the ability to send it out to customers and get feedback on what it breaks, what it doesn't break is another thing as well. And once again, that's about $300,000 in, in this example that I'm giving here. Then once you have it tested, then you have to deploy it. And that costs more money on top of that, oftentimes $200,000 plus to do that. And that doesn't include that intangible, what's it do to your brand? You know, it's easy to blame it on a big software house, but many of these things are small applications that you've either developed yourself or you buy as some sort of middleware. So consequently, application security has been one of the big vulnerabilities now that we have sort of always looked to put the Band-Aid on. We really have to move forward in trying to fix these. We do have programs now. We have actual applications that go out there and do a lot of the manual work. Has anybody here done code review for uh, developers? It's not something that you want to, you know, oh, I'm going to go have fun this weekend. I'm going to look through 25 million lines of code, look for bugs. That's not a fun thing to do. So we have a lot of these automated programs that were in the, in the past looking for quality issues, but not so much for security. So now we've seen the integration of those sort of things. We have actual software out there that looks not only for the quality issues, but also for the security issues, which does a, a great deal in reducing the number of vulnerabilities we have, which then improves the security overall. So the other, so uh, from the application security, the only thing I want to uh, close that aspect on is sort of building this into the software development lifecycle. There's always this, been this perception, and, and I haven't done any real development for almost over 20 years now, and when I did, I wasn't very good at it anyway. But when you look at the software development lifecycle, when you sit down and say, we're going to build an app that's going to do foo, whatever foo may be, it's got to be, you know, okay, this is going to be a cool G, uh, GUI. It's going to be really one click to get to wherever you need to get done, but it's also got to be done securely. So that's got to be building the software development lifecycle. And the perspective is, no, you don't do whatever you do and then get to the QA and then find something's wrong and say, oh, sorry, we're behind budget, we're behind time, we'll fix that next revision. What you do is you build it as you go along. When you write the code, you run an app on it to, ch to check the code for security. And then you pass it on, you go through the compiling, you go through the QA process and penetra penetration testing and everything else. The other thing which is really interesting, I think, is sort of the next generation, I'm interested to get feedback from you on well, uh, is the whole issue about wireless security. I remember, I think it was June of, I want to say, 1999 time frame. I was at Microsoft at the time. I got a panic call from one of uh, the directors of my security organization that said, did you hear what Bill Gates said? And I, it's not as if I sit there waiting day to day to hear what the boss is going to say because they're always saying something. And he said, he said, and it was like April, by June, the entire Microsoft campus will be wireless. And my initial reaction was, that's pretty cool because I'm tired of having to leave everything in my office, go to a conference room and not being able to do whatever I need to do and, and drag stuff back and forth. I thought it was pretty cool. Then the security in me kicked in and go, well, wait a minute now. You know, I'm not secure. That, I'm not sure that we're secure in that, and I'm even more secure and less assured that we're prepared to deploy something like that and have security built into it. Because I know how things work: idea, deployment, secure. I mean, that's sort of the backwards way of doing things. And so I said, well, wait a minute, we need to check that. So what I did was I got a couple folks together that were really, really sharp in the 802.11, uh, you know, at the time it was B space, I guess, and said, okay, tell me what some of the issues are. And one of the biggest ones, believe it or not, that they came forth was the fact you can't control the RF. I mean, a building is built like this. 
the pattern is like this. So you have people sitting out in the parking lots and do all this other stuff. They can either jump on your connection or suck it down and decrypt it if you were using encryption. We'll talk about the web uh, joke here in a minute. Uh, but basically, that was number one. Secondly is how do you keep people from sitting on the network and sniffing the network, even sitting inside the building? We had tons and tons of people coming in and visiting and stuff. The good news at that time you know, wireless wasn't, you know, built into everything that we did. So consequently, you'd be able to see somebody if they'd stuck in a wireless card or USB device. But basically, we started doing this laundry list, and it was basically says, that's nice. Deploy it. So this had to go through. And that was really painful. The ability to exclude MAC, MAC addresses or manage MAC addresses in a, in a, in a campus with, I think the time we had about 12,000 people in there, and people having a new box one day and then, it breaking down and having a new one, the ability to manage that was just a nightmare. But we deployed it. But we've gotten better about it. The the implementation of Leap, uh, fixing the deficiencies in, in the original implementation of WEP, 64-bit where I, I forget the number of packets you can suck down, but you can decrypt the key in relatively short order, then you get access to everything on the network. Those sort of things have been resolved. We've also seen the ability to go ahead and really architecture, which is kind of a neat concept to engineer a wireless deployment so you don't have it like 300 feet on the side of the building on this side and people in the window can't use the wireless because it doesn't work on this side. Be able to architect that and engineer it into a system is very important. What are some of the other things we're seeing now? And I've seen this happen. How many here do a lot of traveling? Not many? Oh, a little bit? Yeah, you're lucky. Because it's really cool when you're sitting there in a hotel and you pick the brand name of the hotel and they generally have their wireless system, if they have wireless, with their hotel name. Then you see the same name about four other times and the signal's not quite as strong and you're in like a, a downtown New York or downtown San Francisco and go, hmm, is this really, really who I want to be connected to? So the whole concept of a rogue AP is very likely. Matter of fact, a lot of people depend on it. Outside coffee shops and fast food places now offer wireless. People sit out there and, and, and run a rogue AP and put in there and just start sucking down your data. That's what they do. The misassociation issue or misconfigured is another issue we deal with wireless that has not really been dealt with in our ability to take a non-technical, non-security person and have them be able to dif differentiate how to configure it right and how to not configure it right. The concept of unauthorized association. Yeah, you can go through and do Mac filtering and set a nice list and stuff like that, but that's really not, not really practical, particularly in a, in a public environment. You know, you, the idea of that is you want everybody to be in, enjoying it. A lot of the cities now are going to Wi-Fi citywide, free of charge. You can sit in a park with your laptop and do what you want to do. You know, so you don't want to, you know, lock people out. But on the same token, you don't want people going to be able to sit there and try to be scanning the network, looking for vulnerabilities, and start installing keystroke loggers and all these those things in your, in your network. And the one that you don't hear, and I, I don't know if anybody here has heard, I've yet to hear about a denial of service attack on a wireless AP. To me, that would be the easiest thing going. I'm, I've been a ham radio operator for like 40 years, but I've never heard of anybody. Has anybody here heard of that? I've heard of... Uh, Is your mic on? Thanks. Um, we had a... Um Grad student that graduated from here a few years ago, he worked for uh, the government in Bolivia, and they used a wireless uh, network to, to connect uh, some border system that they were using. And they had some truckers, apparently, with these jamming devices that were actually uh, disrupting that network right. that connected their two outposts there. Now, was that regular 802.11, or was it yeah. somewhere? Yeah, see, and, and that's the thing to me that seemed to be most prevalent. 
If I want to really mess with somebody, I'm just going to go ahead and transmit on the same frequency and just, and just kill the system. But that's another issue we have to deal with in wireless. And once again, right now, in a lot of cases, we either have an expectation that there will be wireless there or there will be a wired connection. As we move away from the expectation of having the wireless there, the expectation will be we will have wireless everywhere we go. Once we have that expectation, there will be a greater dependency on it. If it doesn't exist, we're going to be hosed. It's just like use of GPSs. I've got you know one of these, I don't have it with me, but one of these $200 uh, portable GPS, battery operated. You, you can select what type, whether you're on foot, a bicycle, whether you're driving a fire truck or a car. And it just really, really works good until the battery goes dead. And you don't have your charger with you and you go, map? I don't have a map. And if I had one, I'm not sure I know how to remember to read a map anymore. It doesn't have the detail. It doesn't have the ability to put in, I want to go from West Lafayette to Chicago via 65, or I want to go some other route. It doesn't have that in there. So consequently, our dependency on wireless is becoming greater. It's great that we deploy it, but we have to deploy it in a secure manner. And once again, it goes back to the old you know, dream of deploy and then secure. That's the wrong way of doing things as well. Sort of the... Uh, uh, Next thing I want to touch on very briefly is peer-to-peer -peer networks. Now, I'm not talking about instant messaging. I'm not talking about, you know, some of the file sharing things that we do on a legitimate basis, nor is I'm here to debate the issue on intellectual property and digital rights management and all the, the pros and cons that go with that. I'm talking about just, you know, things like LimeWire and eDonkey and Gronkston and these sort of things, which traditionally used to share some sort of digital media like movies and, and music and stuff like that. What we've seen is a couple things taking place. I'm going to give you a, 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 some statistics here uh, that came from McGraw-Hill, uh, Nielsen, uh, CashLogic, Tyversa, a lot of different companies came out with this. Uh, at the end of, or the beginning of 2005, it's about almost two-year-old information now, so I'm sure it's significantly more. On an average day, there would be an estimated 200 million searches a day on Excite, Google, MSN Search, and Yahoo. About 200 million searches. So if you think that's about two-year-olds, you probably want to probably double that amount. That's just on the World Wide Web search engines. On peer-to-peer -peer networks at that time, there were about 800 million searches per day. 800 million searches per day. Once again, you double that uh, based on what's happened over the past couple of years. And that's a whole lot more searches on peer-to-peer -peer networks than what we've got on uh, the World Wide Web searches that are out there. And what happens traditionally, uh, you know, they're searching for things like Black Eyed Peas or, you know, Black Sabbath or whatever who their favorite artist would be. They're searching for those sort of things is what most of us think, except those in security. When we go look at some of the searches and we start sucking down what the search patterns are, and what we see taking place in that case is uh, they're searching for things like internal audit reports, RFPs, RFQs, human resource records, network designs, network migration plans, double-blind trial results, and on. And by the way, these terms I'm reading to you from the screen up here are real live terms that are being searched for on peer-to-peer -peer networks. And like one of the infomercials, and there's more. We also see in these areas, here's some specific ones in the medical field, which I find really interesting. These are the searches that are being done. Care Office NBC Health, NBC standing for Nuclear, Biological, and Chemical Health. Medicine, mental health, CRC of, hospital records, mental hospitals, hospital, hospital letterhead, hospital records, Niagara Hospital, American Medical, Connolly Medical, UPS, Prostate, data entry medical billing, and I've got like 
70 different terms just from one bad guy that was searching for stuff on the peer-to-peer network. So here we have people installing peer-to-peer network for what they think is legitimate purposes, not realizing in some cases when not configured properly, in some cases just by default, shares more than just, say, the music file. It shares out their entire documents file, or in some cases shares out their entire drive. So that is being exposed, which is half of the problem, the vulnerability. The other half, there's really, really people out there looking to exploit that data. And those searches I gave you are real live examples of that. So the whole concept of peer-to-peer is something that we're seeing now an emerging threat that people out there are searching for. One of, the, one of the specific things, how many here do their free credit report every year? If you don't do it, I mean, it's free, it's legitimate, and you can sort of keep an eye on things that are going on. But don't do one thing. Don't be running peer-to-peer network. Do that and save it to your hard drive as a PDF. There was, we've seen, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of people that have shared out their hard drives and have, you know, Bob's credit report, Carol's credit report. And that stuff the bad guys are sucking down, number one. And secondly, they're actually setting up data aggregation services by sector in some cases. So if you want information on medical facilities, there is a server in Chile that you can lease for about $5,000 a week or, or 500 euros a, a day. Uh, and you can have whatever data you want off of that, and then they cut off your service to it. That's a service that they're providing. They're criminals. It's a felony, but they're providing this service to you. And you tell them what you're looking for. If you're looking for financial services, no problem. Go to the server in, in Auckland. If you want to find something on uh, uh, terrorist tools and tactics, one of them in, uh, I think it's, uh, I'm sorry, I had it backwards. The one on financial services in Cairo, the one on terrorist stuff is in Auckland. It tells you how to make sarin gas, how to bypass or try to get through U.S. customs without acting suspicious. I mean, I can't even do that. But yet it has a little how-to on this stuff that's being shared on the peer-to-peer networks. And the interesting piece of that, for those of us that have ever had to run security in an enterprise environment, one of the things we try to do is we try to put aside what humans may wind up doing. So we try to have technical controls in place that block one's ability to use peer-to-peer networks in an environment where we don't permit it, generally which causes you to block a certain port. And what happens, some of the software even goes so far as to say when it, when it does the install, it'll try to send a packet out through that particular port and goes, oops, sorry, it's blocked. It appears that your system administrator has blocked this port. Do you want to bypass that? And if you, and most people click yes. And then it drives it through port 80, so it goes out through his regular web traffic. So it actually bypasses, circumvents the security controls that one, one might have in an environment in order to do these sort of things. And a lot of people aren't aware of this. I mean, and I'm sitting here, I'm looking at, at, at one thing up here. There's about 120 files I've got here from patient records, uh, uh, from one doctor's machine that had a whole ton of music on there that was being shared out, but also had all these medical records too that were being shared out. that had all kinds of information. And the last one on this before I uh, 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 stop and, and, and see if you all have any questions is the concept of the people don't realize that they're doing this. People don't realize that bad guys are out there actually collecting this stuff. And even somewhat security-related things that they do can come back and bite them. Real story once again. Uh, the, docu- the most recent document I found, I think it was over 18,000 incidents of it that I found on peer-to-peer systems around the world. 
One of them was apparently this woman had been a victim of either credit card fraud or somehow there was a mix-up on her credit card bill. So doing like most people do, I presume she called the bank and said, listen, hi, I'm Jane Smith, and I see this charges on my credit card, which were not me. And they said, okay, write a letter, send it to us, that you challenge those credit things. I mean, I've had to do that with a mistake on one of my credit bills. So I figured that's the way it was done. So she types up the letter. Says, hi, my name is Jane Smith. My social security number is one two three four five six seven eight nine. My credit card number is one two three four five six seven eight nine. Uh, my address is such and such. My PIN number is such and such. This is the transaction number I'm challenging. You know, please put a hold on this or investigate this because this was not my charge. Saves it as a document on her computer system, which is shared out on a peer-to-peer -peer network. That's why one of the terms on there that the bad guys search for are credit. They just look for that thing, and um, guess what? Her letter was just slammed all over the Internet. Made her a double victim in this case. And hopefully that, you know, that credit card has been long shut down, closed out, or whatever the case may be in it. So sort of the, the last thing uh, I, I want to take just a really quick minute on is sort of the other end of the spectrum, the home, end user, consumer space, small, medium businesses. As we get better at large enterprises, if universities get better about security, sort of the, the people left out there in no man's land at the end users in the consumer space. Uh, and I don't know if anybody's ever participated in, but, you know, in the police department they have the block watch or neighborhood watch programs where you can all get together and, you know, have uh, you know, some hors d'oeuvres and talk about how to cut your plants in front of your windows and how to make sure your doors are locked, even alarm systems and stuff like that. We don't do the same thing for information security. And so when we go visit families and friends, we may be using to show them how cool Google Earth Live is or, you know, show them all this nice stuff. But how many times we in the security profession actually sort of get together and do a neighborhood block and just go up and down your block and make sure people have antivirus and automatic updates turned on and these sort of things. These are the sort of things that are creating problems for us. Because when we start talking about my last topic, such as botnets, botnets are not out there generally from large enterprises. They're from consumer space that's got broadband, DSL, or, or cable that's out there that don't know any better. They don't even know that they've been bought it. And the bot herders depend on that. They collect these things, everything, DDoS attacks, the big increase we've seen in spam in the past few, uh, past six months or so has not been because our spam filters aren't working on the SMTP servers that we've got out there. We're locking those things down very nicely. But what happens is now they're using the home users that's got, you know, four, six megabit per second bandwidth in there, they're just using those as, as spam relays. Nigerian scams, I mean, you name it, that's what they're using for today. So the whole concept of the end user slash consumer is some space that we need to put some focus on as well. So with that, I've got about five minutes according to my, my clock up here. Uh, I thank nobody for falling asleep through this, uh, but turn it over to you. If you have any questions, comments, thoughts, solutions, Curious to know uh, where you see some of our biggest needs in the next, let's say, five years or so. It's we don't expect you to be the perfect prognosticator, but what are the uh, the biggest needs? Yeah, I think there, there's three primary areas. One is the end user consumer space. Uh, it took us what almost 20 years to reach, or a little over 20 years to reach a billion users online, and and of course the the major chunk of that took place took place post-1994 when the World Wide Web became publicly acceptable. Uh, we will probably take less than five years to, to add on the second billion. 
with everything becoming IP enabled and everything else, everybody carrying a mobile device. So that's sort of that area. The, the end user consumer, we can't expect them to become security experts. So that's sort of the frontier that we really need to pay attention to worry about. The second one is very closely linked to that is the mobile devices. You know, I am with this, this is probably my most recent one. I'm one step away from having IP based phone services over this. You know, Skype mobile, whatever uh, type of mobile IP based clients you've got in this is going to be another thing, which means this becomes a really, really big, valuable target. Right now, there's a lot of other stuff out there I can, I can take pot shots at, but the more we depend on these, the more it's going to be a, a target for us. And the third thing is clearly the issue of the application security. As we develop cooler, faster, tighter code and everything else, we're going to continue to see people poke holes at the application side. And if we don't do something about it now, it's going to just get worse and worse for us in the future. Anybody else? Please. Tish or Mike, please. Thanks. What do you think uh, one of the largest barriers is to sort of setting up that community watch for information technology like you suggested. I mean, I know when, once you said that personally, I thought about my own situation. Like, I go home and, you know, my mom's always like, oh, the subscription thing needs to be renewed for antivirus. And, you know, being selfish or whatever, I just don't want to deal with that. I just don't want to hear about that. And then thinking to myself, gosh, what if you what if you imagine a whole block of, like, 100 homes and you're one of five people that have any level of expertise in this and now you have 100 people calling you and saying, Oh, I just got a pop-up, and it said that something was trying to reach the internet. What should I do? Right. Uh, you know, I don't want to. I don't want to deal with that. But, but other than that, I mean, I guess just your thoughts on why you don't see that happening, that sort of thing. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. It's interesting too because, uh, and as you've mentioned it um, perfectly, I mean, we all get tagged to be the CIO for our neighbors and friends everywhere we go. The minute they find out that we're in IT security, you know, we're the ones getting the phone call at two o'clock in the morning. My screen went blank. Uh, yeah, you cat kicked out the plug. Sorry about that. Uh, but you're absolutely correct. Why that's not taking place is I don't think the emphasis has been there. Uh, I've been working with the International Association of uh, Crime Prevention Association. I think is, there's some acronym. I forget what it is. But basically the ones that do the block watches. And there's been a couple uh, agencies around the United States that have actually put together a little DVD that you can give out. Uh, and say, okay, here's how to be secure. You know, turn on auto updates, turn on auto subscriptions, turn this on. You know, don't uh, turn on the phishing filters with the new browsers. Your Safari, Opera, IE, all of them have you know the uh, the anti-phishing stuff built in there as well. But people don't know to do these things for one thing, and the other one is the technology. Has anybody here up updated the Vista yet? I've been beta testing it since the first beta of it. And I still have yet to find some really, really good hardware that runs it. I really love the features of it, but I can't use it because I don't have drivers that don't work. So therefore, people are not going to upgrade to some of the new uh, requirements that have, are more secure. So that's, that's the other reason why some of these things don't take place. The third one is the fact, and you said it perfectly, you just don't have time to fix everybody's computer. So the endpoint solution for this is we need to build security in from the outset so people don't need to worry about it. Anybody bought a car in the past few years? When you go to buy a car, do you have this checklist to say, oh, I want a car with brakes? I want a car with a steering wheel? No, it's built into it automatically. There's safety and security issues, and we have to evolve our technology into making sure we don't need to hold block watches for, for Internet security. But in the meantime, that's probably the only recourse we're going to have. Get people together. It's a pain. Make sure they're on the stair. We're going to do this once every six months, whatever, so you don't get the call in the middle of the night. But clearly, it's an initiative that we have to take on as a whole. 
Okay, looks like I'm on the uh, uh, time. There's not any more questions. I'd like to thank you once again for joining me this morning. Once again, I apologize for the mix-up in the schedule, but thanks for your time and your, your attention. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye.